ahead and turn, please, to John chapter 13. Personally, I'm really excited to be getting back into the Gospel of John. I've enjoyed sanctifying the ordinary, but preparing for this this week and realizing that once again we're going to be just walking with Jesus and all that that means and what that means is just overwhelming. And in John chapter 13, we are going to encounter a scene which for me, I think, outside of Calvary itself is arguably the most moving scene that I've ever seen. It's incredible in, in every way. Just to set the scene of what's really going on here, for three years, Jesus has been performing some incredible ministry in Palestine. He called his disciples, you remember back in John chapter 1, he encounters John the Baptist, and John the Baptist points at him and says, Behold the Lamb of God, the one who comes to take away the sin of the world. It was this grand entrance into his ministry. Jesus then calls his disciples and gets baptized, and he goes on to prove that he really is the king of all the world. He starts to perform miracles as we have the wedding at Cana. We have Lazarus. We have the healing of the man born blind. We have the healing of the, of the paralytic. We have numerous situations where Jesus inserts himself and reveals that he really is the one that can feed the 5,000, that he really is the king, the Messiah that they've been waiting for. And we have his discourses, where if you remember, he's at the Feast of Booths, and he's, he's saying that, you know, this light that represents how God guided you in the wilderness, well, that light was ultimately me. And so I'm the light of the world. And when they're doing the drink offering, he's saying, you know, if any of you thirsts, this was only ever pointing to me in the first place. And so come to me, and you'll never thirst again, and I'll care for you. We've seen that for three years in Jesus' life. And then just four days ago, Jesus has entered in to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. He's there for the final time. Became known as Palm Sunday. And you remember the scene. We did it just a few months ago where he comes in and they are convinced that this is the king. This is the one we've been waiting for. This is surely the king. So Hosanna, king, we love you. We're with you. We're for you. There's all this pomp and circumstance, but he doesn't come in on a white stallion. He comes in on the back of a donkey. And then as he enters in, they all gather around him. And they're starting to work out, okay, what are you going to do? How are you going to overthrow the Romans? How is this going to work? Because we are with you. You are our king, and we've been waiting this all our lives. And he starts to explain, actually, I am the king, but but I've come to die. I've come to give my life up as a ransom for many. And the Jews gather around, and they are so deflated and really disappointed that they reject him. And they start to move away, which is what we see in John chapter 12. And four days later then, Jesus finds himself the night before he dies in a room, the upper room, for a Passover meal with those 12 men that have been so dear to him for the last three years. Men he's chosen out, men he's called out, and now gathered into the room. And from John chapter 13 through 17... We have then Jesus' final discourse with them. The night before he dies, he gathers his troops and he communicates to them some incredible things. And this then is what happens in John chapter 13. We're going to read the whole chapter. Let's enjoy this together. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. During supper, 
when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it round his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped round him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and what, what was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things... Blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know who I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. And I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what you need for the feast or that he should give him something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now also I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. 
Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, and you will follow me afterwards. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the cock will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let's pray. Oh Lord, there is no doubt that as we gather around this text that this is an emotionally charged scene. Oh Lord, would we then not come to this scene lightly? But would we come to this scene reverently? Would we be affected by your word? Oh Lord, would we see our face amongst the disciples this morning as we gather around this table with you reclining at table, at the end, would we gather around the table also and listen in to your words and would we have eyes to see you just like the disciples saw you? In Jesus' name, amen. This is a chapter of scripture that I think is seriously challenging and provoking. I mean, it's grievous in one sense because we see Judas as the betrayer. And we start to see the one very clearly who is actually going to betray Jesus and ultimately sell him into the governor's hands. So it's grievous in that sense. I think it's also sobering because right at the end we start to see Peter the denier and the man who we followed for a number of months and who we've seen in different ways and who we admire as the rock. We realize, man, alive, even he failed. Even he messed up when it came to the point. And so I think in in that sense, it is sobering to us all and each and every one of us as to, if he can deny Christ, then what could I do in my life giving me the same circumstances? But I think more than anything, I think it's challenging and provoking because in this text, you see Jesus as the divine, humble servant. And as you see him with a towel wrapped around his waist, I think one of the things it does to each and every one of us, if we're seeing it correctly, is it highlights our selfishness, doesn't it? And I know for me in my life this week as I prepare this, I, 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 haven't wanted, I haven't waited till Sunday. I just want to share the wealth because I've had a week of conviction under this scripture. And you think, oh Lord, convict them. Let my brothers and sisters be convicted as well. I think it is challenging to us in the highest degree because we begin to get provoked in our selfishness. So I think in all reality, as human beings, we all have a tendency towards selfishness, don't we? It's something that we don't even ever have to get taught. Have you ever thought about that? No, our parents never had to sat, sit us down and say, right, today I'm going to teach you how to be selfish. Now, it, it comes kind of natural. It's something that we just do. I, I, I remember trying to teach our kids to say mum and teach them to say dad. I never had to teach them to say mine, but that was their first word. You know, I never had to say, well, this is, this is yours, kids. So it, it, it just seems to come naturally that they understand this is mine. And the second word that they understand is when you try and get the stuff that is mine, they say no. So those words seem to come naturally. And also what seems to come naturally is Christmas time when everybody gathers their Christmas presents and boxes them back up. 
Maybe it's just my kids, or maybe it's just what I do. But, but everybody starts to cordon off their gifts, and you start to get near. Oh, Lydia, is that your presence? And that, that, Whoa, they're my presence. And you think, well, that's fine. And then you notice, actually, you've put yours on a chair as well out the way. And your wife says, oh, there's people coming over later. Maybe we could share your lollies. And you're like, no, they're mine. And you think, yeah, I think that's probably where they picked it up from. Kids understand selfishness, I think, very quickly by nature. And interesting about kids is they become teens, And then so many teens become students, don't they? In Britain, so many students then share accommodation. They're not family. They're not related in any sense. They're just students sharing a house together. And and I submit to you, having done that, it's during those years that selfishness really comes to the fore. And you start to see how selfish people are. I came across a book recently. The title of the book is simply, I Lick My Cheese. And it's written by students that actually leave notes on each of those doors across the house. And it's filled with these types of notes. These are the type of notes that real-life students in Britain leave on each of those doors. Please ask before you borrow my stuff. My skirt is now totally stretched after you shoved it over your fat backside. You are one of the most selfish people I've ever met. And the whole thing is just underlined and in bold. Here's another one. I know this might seem petty, But your domination on what we watch on TV is really depressing me. Watching reruns of the OC, which is just an excuse for you to look at girls, is not how I want to spend my Saturday mornings. I can take a joke, but hiding the remote control is really immature. And you can just imagine getting back and seeing that plastered above your door. This one was written on the inside of a toilet roll, the cardboard bit at the center. Some student actually written this and then pinned it above somebody's bed. It says, you promised, and I quote, if we all buy the toilet rolls, then we will never have to do it again. (laughs) What do you call this then? That's right. The end of the last roll. Cheers, liar. (laughs) Just imagine coming across that. This is one of my favorites. I just thought this is genius. Dear all, I've noticed that my shampoo seems to be very diluted. Kindly... Do not use it and then try to deceive me by adding what I can only hope is water. (laughs) Karen. This one's one of my personal favorites. I had to share this one. This is just genius. The washing up you didn't do is in your bed. (laughs) That's just genius. Here's one from Stephanie. Frank. When I said you can clean the kitchen, I didn't mean for you to paint it. You have just painted over everything, including the dust, in white emulsion. It looks like a blizzard. Do you not know how to clean? Because this is not the normal way. The paint is already coming off the tiles and the oven hood. I'm going home for the weekend, and so could you try and sort it out? You've been watching too many changing rooms. Stephanie. And then this final one, pinned to the front door of the student accommodation, I hate you more than life itself. (laughs) That is the success of the British student years. Those kids become teens that move into shared houses, that pin things like that to each other's doors because selfishness is so profound. And, And the amazing thing is those students, well, they become us. And we grow up as in we grow older. But whether we're married or single, whether we have kids or not, 
I think we all sense at different times a tendency towards selfishness, don't we? I do regularly, and you wouldn't have to hang around our house long to see it revealed in my life. Life group's coming over, and Emma says, oh, why don't we get out these special biscuits? And you're like, I don't want to get them out, because they're the special biscuits. That's the point. You know, and you think, oh, this is so convicting, and yet, yet I sense it. I feel it. Love, get the cheap ones out. It's just the life group. You know? <laughs> My life group's thinking, I knew it. Those biscuits stink. I knew it. I'm right in the cupboards. And I've had to genuinely adjust in that because you think, this is just selfish. This is unkindness on my heart. So now we share the snacks out of group and that's really helped me. But all that to say, selfishness is a factor for me. And I think in reality, in different ways, selfishness can be a factor for all of us, isn't it? A tendency in our lives. And accordingly then, John chapter 13, I think, is so challenging and so provoking. Because as you encounter it, you realize Jesus isn't like me at all. He's so different. He's selfless in every way. And so you read it through and you're challenged and provoked. And that's the way God has designed it to be. And so as we look back at this chapter today and try and exposit it and bring it to life, I I want it to challenge and provoke us. I think John wants it to challenge and provoke us. More importantly, I think God wants it to challenge and provoke our hearts. So two points, two simple points. Pete had seven last week. They then turned into six mysteriously along the way. But he had seven. I've only got two. Number one, the servant king's example. And then number two, the servant king's commission. So number one, the servant king's Example, here's the scene. Let us set the scene once again. The crowds have all gone. It is game over for the crowds. They've come to a place of profound disappointment with the Savior. They are convinced that he's either not the one or he is the one. He's a big disappointment, but he's certainly not the one they've been waiting for. So now the scene cuts to the upper room. The night before Jesus is about to give his life as a ransom for many, He resides at the table with his 12 disciples, whom he dearly loves. And as we begin this time together in the upper room, we read in the other gospel accounts really what is going on. And what we find in the other gospel accounts is as this meal begins, as this time begins, they enjoy the Passover meal together. And Jesus then, in epic wonder, changes the meaning of the Passover meal for them. For years, for decades, hundreds of years, they had understood the Passover meal to point back to, to the coming out of, of Egypt. It was the Passover. So for hundreds of years, they'd always celebrated that, you know what, this bread represents the lamb and this wine represents the blood. And it all points back to the lamb that God said, you know what, kill the lambs and put their blood above your doorposts and when the angel of death comes around, you'll be saved. Well, all the Israel did that and what occurred at the result of that in joy is when the angel of death came around, They really were all saved. And so God said, well, I'll institute then a Passover meal for you. I want you to once a year look back to what he's done, the killing of the lamb, and to enjoy a meal together and look back. And yet Jesus, an incredible and epic wonder, says, you know what? I'm going to change this Passover meal. It's now going to be the Lord's Supper. And so as you take this bread, and he's getting them to pick it up, as you take this bread, I want you to understand this is no longer pointing back to the lamb. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
And as you take this wine, as you drink it, disciples, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For hundreds of years, it's pointed back to the Passover. But now Jesus is saying, tomorrow, I'm going to die for you as the ultimate Passover lamb. And so from this day onwards, as you take the bread and the wine, don't look back to the Passover lamb. Look back to me, the ultimate lamb of God who died in your place. He reinstitutes something that has been in their tradition for hundreds of years. And this is of epic proportions. Ever since the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3.15, when God prophesies over Satan and says, you know what, although you will bruise his heel, one will come who will crush your head. Ever since that moment, all of salvation history is wondering, who is the serpent crusher going to be? When is he going to come and what is he going to be like? What is he going to do? Cain and Abel come and go, it's clearly not them. Abraham and Isaac come and go, it's clearly not them. But we do have an incredible scene where Abraham has a knife above his son's body. And an angel calls out to him to stop. And a ram which is caught in the thicket is then taken. And Isaac is untied and the ram is put on instead and the ram is slaughtered in place of Isaac. And Abraham says, you know what? I don't completely get it. But on this mount the Lord will provide. He saw his day and rejoiced. He realized one is going to come in some way to be my substitute. Well, we then get to the Passover itself. And as the angel of death comes round, they put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts. And that's ultimately what saves all their firstborns. For hundreds of years then, they've been waiting. Who's it going to be? Who did the Passover lamb point to? And now Jesus says, I'll tell you exactly who. Me. I'm the one that you've been waiting for. And so as you take the bread, realize it's my body. And as you take the wine, realize this is my blood of the new covenant. It's all changed now. Through faith in me alone will full salvation come to you. So remember the blood of the new covenant as you take it. Now you would think, you would certainly be expecting, I think at this point, an incredible response, would you not? You'd be assuming that the disciples at this moment would be hitting their knees in awesome wonder of the Savior. They would be rejoicing with the Savior. They'd be bringing out their musical instruments and delighting in the Savior. They'd be doing all they can to encourage and worship the Savior. That is what you would expect, surely, in this moment. But what actually happens, according to the Gospel of Luke, is an argument breaks out. They're unimpressed by what the Savior is saying. Instead, they start kicking off amongst one another. They're passing the bread and the wine around, but post that there, they're starting to get cross with one another. They're arguing together. What are they arguing about? Well, are they arguing about the theological significance of Jesus changing the Passover meal? Are they arguing about the intricacies of that? No. Are they arguing about who is going to be with Jesus when he dies, when he gives his life as a ransom for many, who's going to care for him to the end? No. They're not thinking about that at all. In Luke chapter 22, verse 24, he says, an argument broke out between them about who is going to be the greatest. You see, the disciples are selfish just like us. And so Jesus has just instituted the Lord's Supper. 
He's just expounded to them that it all points to him. And they are muttering around the edges about, oh, thanks, Jesus. That is, that's really, really quite interesting. But I'm just wondering, who's going to be the greatest? Because I am pretty good. And then they start to argue and say, well, I'm pretty good too. I mean, I've been with you. And you remember, I carried your sandals that one time. And they're starting to argue amongst themselves and kick off with each other. Because they still think, when you come into the kingdom, though, I, w- I want to be a special person. I want a special place because I'm a special guy, right? So they start to argue. Lord, when you come into your kingdom, who's going to be the greatest? Who are you going to be introducing first with the, you know, the trumpet fanfare? And is this going to be me? It'll probably be me. I'd understand if it was me. That's what's going on here. And then Jesus, in response, gives John chapter 13 a most incredible response. So they kick off in selfishness about who's going to be the greatest. Jesus is not cross. He's not frustrated. It says in verse 1, he loves them to the end. So here's what happens then in verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, And that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it round his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. What a scene, don't you think? And when you understand the context, how incredible that is. What an incredible response from the Savior. You see, the foot-washing role was the lowest of the low. Jewish slaves wouldn't be allowed to do it because even as a slave, it was classed as being beneath them. Only the lowest of the Gentile slaves could wash feet. No one wants to wash somebody's feet. And yet in this time, in this culture, they did need to have their feet washed. And so it would be the lowest of the lowest slave that would do it. And yet Jesus in this moment, as the saviour of the world, takes off his outer garments, puts a towel around his waist, and gets on his knees and starts to do that role. He starts to serve them and love them and wash their feet you know, to the disciples, this would have no doubt had an incredibly silencing effect because this was a mind-blowing moment. Even in their limited understanding, they certainly believed that he was the king. And so this is a, this is a, this is a ridiculous scene. It would be like, it'd be like Prince William and Kate on their marriage day when everybody's saying, oh, you're so amazing. You look so wonderful. You, you are going to be the king one day and you'll be the queen one day. And they say, yes, I know. And she takes off her wedding dress and he takes off his suit and they start to go around the audience and just wash their feet. Can you imagine that being reported on ABC? People are like, what? Or it would be like Queen Elizabeth when she was, came into coronation and they put a crown on her head and said, you now have the rule of the nations. And she said, oh, thank you very much. And they said, well, what are you going to do with your first day? He said, well, the first thing I'm going to do I'm going to go to Buckingham Palace. I'm going to clean all the toilets because that's what's needed. That's how ridiculous this is. This is a scene where you just think, what? This is overwhelming. 
the king of the world, washing his disciples' feet. And yet that is exactly what happens. He loves them to the end. And so knowing what they need, and knowing that they, he, they still don't seem to understand exactly what he's going to be doing and who he is and the values that he carries for them, he takes off his outer garments, puts a towel around his waist, and serves them. Even the lowest of the lowest roles. That was incredible for me is when you look at verse 12, it says, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments, and then he carries on. What's evident is no one was left out of the foot washing. You ever thought about that? Because I hadn't until this week. So what that means is one of the set of feet that he washed was Judas. The one that's about to sell him. The one that's about to betray him. Jesus is the king. He's on his knees serving Judas. Washing his feet. Now, I think for us, that's even hard to imagine, eh? What does that look like? I remember a number of years ago, watching the news, and it was just this news-slash-documentary about some of the psychological effects of war on the UK troops. And they're saying one of the greatest challenges they have, which they then went on to change, is the UK troops would be fighting the Taliban. Obviously, the Taliban would be fighting back, and different troops would be getting killed on the British side. But then if you were injured as a UK troop, What was happening to some of them is they would obviously black out and then they would wake up in hospital. And as they wake up in hospital, the person next to them in the bed would be Taliban. And they were just saying the effects for these troops was just, they they can't work it out. One minute I'm shooting at you and you're shooting back at my best friends. The next minute you're being cared for just like I am. And it was just a documentary about how the psychological effects that were happening on them and they couldn't get their heads around, like, How's this? this is not right. And yet Jesus, as he goes around the disciples, goes around all 12, even the one that is about to betray him and sell him, he's effectively washing the feet of the Taliban in this moment because he loves them. And he loves them even to the end. Sovereign Grace, I want to encourage you Behold your God. This is him. Whatever you think he is, this is what he is. From eternity past, the Savior had perfect unity with Father and Holy Spirit. They enjoyed perfect unity together. They dwelled in purity and joy and grace and splendor. At the right time then, Jesus himself, and being commissioned by the Father and through the Holy Spirit, spoke all things into being. He brought creation into being. He made all things through his voice, so light and earth and vegetation and living creatures. All these things he was sovereignly overseeing in his splendor and in his grace. And as a pinnacle of all creation, he breathed into being mankind, man and woman. You would think then that many years on, when he enters the earth, that he would come in with the greatest fanfare ever told, because he's the creator king. But of course the world had already fallen by then. And so there was no fanfare. The creator king, the one who spins the galaxies, was born into the squalor of a borrowed stable. He was then despised and rejected by men. 
Even though he was performing miracles in his life, people were looking on and rejecting him, wanting nothing to do with him. And then the night then, before he was about to give his life as a ransom for many, as the disciples argue amongst themselves about who is going to be the greatest, he takes a towel and he wraps it around his waist and he takes a bowl and he starts washing their feet. Behold your God. This is him. This isn't just what he's like. This is him. And the reality is this night was just a prelude. Because tomorrow, having heard the silence in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he cried out to the Father to see if there was another way, and having heard back a deafening silence, and having been unjustly tried and betrayed and arrested, tomorrow he would be whipped. He would be scourged. A whole battalion would gather around the Saviour, a number around which we would have in this room today. The whole group would gather around the Saviour. They would cloak him in a purple cloak, meaning royalty, in a funny ha-ha way. They begin to beat him and say, prophesy who it was then that just smacked you on the head. They put a crown of thorns and drove it into his skull. They continued to beat him. And then they crucified him. Everybody had rejected him. People had run away from him. And he hung on a cross, deserted, alone, a jeering and mocking and spitting crowd. And as he hangs there, he became an object of wrath for me and for you. The father in in awesome, righteous anger threw his wrath out onto his son as he became sin for us. He was making it possible for the great exchange to take place. You know what, where it talks in this verse is about through 6 through 11, that humorous interaction with Simon Peter, when Simon says, oh, you're not going to wash my feet. And then he says, I need to wash your feet. You know, it's important because it's, it's a sign of some ways of what's going to come. And, okay, well, let's go for it then. Do my head as well. And you think, oh, so, Peter, um, you know, thanks for playing. But... And he says, look, you, Peter, you don't get it at the minute, but you will get it later on. What he's doing there is he's basically explaining to him that, you know what? As I'm washing your feet, this is an example to you. And he goes on to explain that in a few moments. But it's not just an example. Peter, it's, it's a sign. It's a sign of something that is going to come tomorrow. Because Peter, you are filthy. You are a sinner. And you need to be saved by my grace. But to be saved by my grace, you need a saviour who can wash you as white as snow. You need a saviour who can wash you clean and cleanse you not only on the outside of your feet, but all of your innards as well. Because as you stand before a righteous God, Peter, you stand there guilty as charged. And you need a sacrificial lamb. And so, Peter, tomorrow I will die for you. And you don't understand this today. But you will understand it tomorrow. And through faith in me then, you can be washed as white as snow. Peter didn't understand that. But the Savior, even this night, is pointing towards tomorrow 
and what he's going to achieve on the cross as the greatest exchange of all time takes place, where he takes man's sin and he disputes then his purity and his splendor and his righteousness that he can impute through faith into our lives as he truly washes us clean. Folks, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I don't know what you think God is like. I don't know what you think about when you think about God. This is what he's like. This is exactly what he's like. He's a savior who spins the galaxies and creates all things. And then he's a savior who puts on flesh on the greatest rescue mission ever told. And as he hangs on the cross and says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He's looking at you. He's looking at you. He's saying, what more could I do? You spend your life saying, well, I'm not sure there even is a God. I don't know how this works. And he spends his life and says, I spun the galaxies for you. And I came after you in the person work in my flesh of Jesus. And I died for you. What more can I do? He's got a point. What are you going to do? Ultimately, the God of heaven and earth isn't the one being assessed. You are. And he makes it clear that in our sin we are cut off from him. But he also makes it clear that through his death and faith in his death and resurrection, you can be washed clean as white as snow. And so that as God sees you, he sees you through the righteousness of his son. And so if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior... I exhort you with everything I've got. Put your faith in him as your Lord and Savior and know what I'm on about today. Make him the king of your life, understanding that he died in your place, that you are a sinner, but he is sinless and he came after you and died in your place so that you may have life and that in abundance. How do you experience that life? By putting your faith in him as your Lord and Savior. Do that today. But folks, if you've already done that, you're here today and you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I just simply want to encourage you, John 13, behold your God. This is what he's like. Sometimes we think, where's God? I'm not sure he cares. Really? Have you read John 13 recently? He cares. He's intimately acquainted with all your ways. And as we go on to see in John 14 and 15 and 16 and 17, we see him caring time and time and time again. What is he like? What is his disposition towards you as his children? He's like a saviour who would take off his outer garments and put a towel around his waist and start washing your feet. Behold your God. But we would do this text a disservice if all we did was behold him. It's not point to the servant king's commission. You know, there are some nights in our lives that I think we never, ever forget, aren't they? They're memories that stay vivid in our minds and always will for all eternity. They stand out. And so birthdays, moments in our lives that I remember my 30th birthday vividly because it was just such a special night and I can remember who was there and what we did different celebrations that take place in our lives, different conversations that you realize, man, that was a turning point in my life. And and you remember those moments, don't you? 
There's certain moments and nights that are, that are burnt into our memory. And you can remember what you were wearing. You can remember so many things about the night. And for John, this is what this is like. Evidently for John, this evening was one of those nights. That's why he gives us five chapters on it. Five chapters spending time looking at, you know what, this is exactly what he said. This is what he did. This is what went on. He remembers it so vividly because he remembers the night being so charged with emotion. And he remembers the very next day, this is the day Jesus died. And oh my gosh, I just want to tell you about the night before. I want to tell you about what happened. And yet it's also important to realize and to try and do all we can to imagine this scene and think of this scene from Jesus' perspective too. I mean, imagine the scene and feel the emotion of the scene from his perspective. Tomorrow, he is going to die. He knows that it's game over tomorrow. That his life has been fulfilled and done. It's evident in verse 3 where he says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he then continues. He, he knows exactly who he is. He knows exactly where he's going to come from. He knows exactly what's going to happen and exactly where he's going to be going. He knows that tomorrow is the last day of his life. And in these final moments then with his disciples, his disciples, which he calls in verse 33, his little children do you feel the affection of that he's gathering these men these boys around him and saying oh oh guys i love you and tomorrow i'm going to be gone he wants for them to feel his heart he he wants for them to feel his care for them and he wants them to understand his priorities for them when he leaves if you don't feel his emotion I don't think we'll ever feel and understand John 13 through 17. You've got to feel that sense of he's going. He loves them, but he knows he's leaving them. What would you be saying if it was the last night of your life? Who would you be gathering around you and what would you be communicating to them? The things that are coming into your mind now are the things that he's doing, right? Communicating care, communicating love, Communicating priorities. I remember a few years ago when Pete Greasy's dad um, passed away. It was a very vivid season in our church at Christchurch. And what had basically taken place is Pete's dad just one afternoon and said, you know what, this is really weird, but I can't put my fingers together properly. And, and Pete said, oh, that's a bit strange. You know, it would be worth getting that checked out. They went to the hospital. They got a scan on his brain, and they actually found that there was a mass on his brain. And so they said, you know what, we'll need to do a biopsy on this very quickly to make sure that there's not any concern here. They did a biopsy on it. And when the biopsy came out, Pete's dad really just lost the plot at that point, literally. He became a different man, became an angry man. And that was not his character at all. His whole personality began to change and shift. And Pete picked him up from the, picked picked his dad up, who's a gentle guy, up from the hospital. And he's just shouting at people and slagging people off. And he's like, what's happened to my dad? And the doctor said, look... One in a hundred biopsies, this is what happens. People change. And so Pete took him home and cared for him. But what that actually became was literally the last few months of his life. It was a, a growth on his brain. And they took him home for what they thought was going to be quite a routine surgery to remove it. But because his dad was so angry, he actually kept trying to get out of bed. And he actually, one night he got out of bed, actually tripped, broke his hip. 
and then died a few days later of all the damage that he had caused through that. It was such a difficult season. But what was difficult for, for Pete and myself as I was seeking to care for him, one of the things that was so difficult was the fact that they just took him into hostel thinking it would be fine. But then they're effectively bringing a different man back. And so they never sort of heard from their dad in those final moments what his priorities might have been for them or how he felt about them. Just one of those moments where he felt robbed of, that would have been so precious to have that time. And I remember then after his dad died, Pete and Christine, his sister, went into the solicitors to get the will. And the solicitor handed them the will papers and, and it was all in there and, and out fell a, a letter that his dad had wrote a number of years earlier. And it just read right at the start, to my dearest Peter and Christine. And he starts to communicate to them his love for them, his affection for them, and the priorities for their lives. And he just starts telling them how much he loves them and how proud he is of them. And then there's just this one part where he just says, and now to the future. And he's underlined it. And he starts to say to them, you've got to give yourself in this way. You need to do these things. Well, that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. The night before he dies, he's with his little children and he's saying to them, I, I need to communicate to you how I feel about you. And I need to communicate to you the priorities for your lives. Things that can't be optional things that are so dear to me and important to me. Do you feel the emotion of that? This then is what he says to you. Verse 15. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And then he says this in verse 34 as he repeats it. Church, listen. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You know, the Savior's example is so compelling, is it not? As he puts on a towel and starts to wash their feet. And his exhortation, I think, is so clear. It doesn't take a great deal of pastoral unpacking, does it? What is he trying to say to us? He's trying to say very clearly, just as I have done in loving others, I want you to do the same. Because tomorrow I'm going. And so for tomorrow you'll be my ambassadors. So just as you've seen me do here, I want you to be like that. I want you to serve each other. I want you to love each other. I want you to care for one another. The example then is not hard to see. The exhortation is not hard to see. But I want you to notice the reason for what he's saying as well. Because the reason in verse 35 is missional. For by this, verse 35, all people will know, well, what will they know? Jesus, what will they know as I give myself to the brethren? Well, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. My friends, Jesus 
And this moment is talking about mission. He's not saying, well, you have church time, which is all about your family, and then, oh, we have mission over here, which is all about mission. He's saying, no, no. As you serve one another, as you love one another, as you wash the feet of one another by honoring one another and rejoicing together and weeping together and caring for one another and forgiving one another and encouraging one another and spurring one another on to good deeds and confessing to one another and praying with one another and carrying one another's burdens. As you do all these things by simply washing each other's feet through these things, the very world will look on and see that you're my disciples. Sydney should be able to look on at Sovereign Grace Church and say, you are different. The way you love each other. Man, what is that? And then we as a church should have the privilege of saying, I tell you what it is, Jesus has changed our lives. And so we're just seeking to imitate him as he's commanded us. But it's no surprise that you see it because you said you would. And let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about the gospel. So I think one of the greatest mistakes we can make as a local church is to compartmentalize church and mission rather than realizing there is overlap between those things as well. As we give ourselves to one another, carrying one another's burdens, that is one of the things that our community should look on and realize you're different different about you what is it they should be moments of erecting a platform for truth on which we share the truth of the gospel do you see that to jesus this isn't just all about well please try and care for one another because that'll be really nice to jesus is i want you to care for one another because well as reuben walsh says he says of course we believe in the total adequacy of jesus christ to meet the total need of the total person But we must remember this. He saves into the context of the community of faith. So it isn't Jesus and me. It is always Jesus and we. So churches, you give yourself to each other. You are Jesus to one another. When you care for one another, that's an expression of Jesus' care. When you love one another, that's an expression of Jesus' love. All those things are true. And we must, therefore, give ourselves to one another for the building up of the local church. But what Jesus says... Do you realize, though, that as you do that, your very communities will look on and see, you're my disciples. There's something different about them. They're family. They really are together. They don't just call themselves, hey, bro. They feel that way. And they operate that way. And there is a great affection and commitment to one another. The Savior's commission, then, is incredible, isn't it? You know, in a sentence then, if I was to put this entire chapter into one sentence, then here's what it would be. True love is always revealed through more than words. Which is the title for this message, more than words. True love is always revealed through more than words. Our genuine love isn't just revealed through what we say. Our genuine love, according to the Savior, is revealed through what we do. What an example then. Behold your God, the one who takes off his outer garments, puts a towel on, and then serves others. Now, folks, I want to encourage you then, by God's grace, would we all follow his example, amen? It's what we're called to do. We need it. 
Our communities need it. In closing then, let me let Pastor Paul exhort you as a local church. He says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. My friends, this is the God that we are to emulate. So by his grace, would that be the story of sovereign grace? Let's pray. Lord, how wonderful it is to sit with the disciples in the Gospel of John, chapter 13. Lord, what a scene. Our Lord, we do pray for grace for ourselves. Lord, it's not hard to see what you're saying. It is as clear as day. Our Lord, would you give us strength as brothers and sisters to truly love one another like you have called us to love one another. But Lord, as we close, I do pray that now all eyes and all gaze would go on you. For you're the star of the show. You're the star of this scene. You are the one as the Prince of Peace, the maker of heaven and earth. You are he that has then a towel wrapped around your waist. And Lord, tomorrow, you would go on to die alone, Rejected, mocked. Why? For us. Saving them with all eyes in this moment and go towards you. You are worthy of all praise. You are worthy of all energy, all delight. Would our whole lives be about you? Thank you. What a saying.